This is Bonjour Chai, the Chai means live edition. I'm Avi Feingold, and I'm here with Alana Zakon, both of us in Montreal, and Davis Clark in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we talk to Henry Green about Sephardim in Canada, and Alana and David actor-splain to me about their Jewishness and Jewish portrayals in Canadian arts. But first, Alana, David, I am so excited to be doing this, our first ever live show, and it's all due to the involvement of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. So before we get to all our other topics, uh, I really want to welcome Mohamed Hashim, who is the Executive Director of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. Mohamed, welcome. Well, thanks for having me. Excellent. I, uh, you know, it's always good to have fans on the show of the show on the show. So uh, great to have you here. Can you start just by telling us a little bit about the CRRF and what you guys do? Sure. I, I mean, I can give you the boring story of, uh, you know, we're a federal crown corporation. We're from, you know, part of the Canadian Heritage Department. But, you know, in reality, we are, we were born out of an apology and we live as a promise. Um, the foundation was created um during the japanese redress agreement um which when the government put japanese canadians into internment camps during world war ii took away all their possessions sold them used that money to pay for the internment camps and then sent them off uh in 86 um in 88 sorry the government apologized to the japanese community and said um uh, part of the uh, the redress was the creation of our organization uh, and our, uh, we have an endowment that was created, you know, half of it by the government and half of it by the Japanese community as a commitment to doing anti-racist work for in perpetuity. So where their promise. Wow, that's, um, I, I had no idea that it goes that far back. And, uh, but, you know, the way that you explain it, it just makes perfect sense. And I, before, before we go, I, I want to give a shout out to Yoni Goldstein, who's my brother, and have well put this whole conversation together. So. Thank you very much, Joni, for helping us of course, all of course. come together today. So then I, I'd like to, I, I'm curious right now, you know, sometimes if we're going to start with how Jews fit into this whole conversation, because this is bonjour chai, sometimes I think Jews feel like they don't fit into the conversation when racism comes up, you know, as if Jews don't count as a minority because they're sometimes perceived as white or white passing. And they're told sometimes in Canada, well, you're just a privileged majority. I'm curious where you and your organization sees Jews fitting into the race debate today in Canada. Yeah, you're, the anti-Semitism is, is a major part of anti-racism work. And um, I mean, obviously, I, this work can't be done without collaboration from you know, the Jewish community. But also, to be frank, like, you know, I, I've, I've learned some of my best activism from Jewish community members. You know, I've had mentors that have taught me how to do anti-racist work for a very long time, and 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 to be frank, um, like there's pillars in our in, in Canadian democracy uh, who are Jewish who have defined what human rights look like. As to as for today, yeah, I agree with you. I think that you know many of my friends with, who are progressive who are uh, wanting to be involved in progressive issues uh, around anti-racism sometimes feel isolated or targeted or, or, or distant or unwelcome. And I think that's a reality that, um, that many people feel. And, I, and, and I'm not exactly sure how to, how, to, how to deal with it other than to try to live by an example by you know, working in partnership with Jewish communities and, and making sure we create space intentionally. Where would you like to see things go in an ideal world, just in general, let's say in the next year with all the work that you're doing, what do you think is the next step? Because the world is 
slowly, slowly, but surely learning how to be more accepting and inclusive. What's your vision for your organization or for um, us here in community? So look, I think that the country is going through a reckoning. We're understanding our responsibilities in a new way, new and different way. I think Kamloops shook this country to the core to realize that the impact of what has happened, the foundations and building blocks that we built this country upon um, hurt many, many, many people horribly. And I think the reality of grappling with that reality is something that we're all having a bit of difficulty. That just that doesn't mean just like people who have been here for 200 years, but that means new immigrants who came here yesterday who are buying property and wondering whose land is it? I th- and I have a fear that, you know, when we talk about racism, that people look at it as though it's a topic of conversation today and maybe not tomorrow. Uh, and that that window closes. Uh, my hope is that we uh, don't allow it to close and that we create real public policy change uh, that addresses systemic racism in many, many, many ways. We're doing lots of really incredible work on hate crimes. We're, we're working with a number of different community groups, uh, but we're also co-chairing a task force um, with the RCMP to create national standards, which is huge. Because to be frank, like, you know, maybe a, a swastika on a synagogue is an anti-Semitic hate symbol that people understand. But, you know, what if there's other stuff? Uh, what happens at, at mosques? What happens at Gurdwaras? Like, are those understood as hate symbols or not? Uh, this country, like, you know, the Federation, the Jewish Federation in Toronto, they have a research lab that's doing hate symbols and an inventory of such. Um, a guy named Daniel Pennerton, I think his name is. And it's fascinating because, you know, what they're looking at are new hate symbols that are not just anti-Semitic, but are just, are, are hateful. And people don't know what that is. People don't, can't recognize. The CTV actually played it in one of their news clips a little while ago, because they just didn't know what a black sun was. Um, so this is an evolving project. And I think that for us, making sure that it's a high priority for officials and government decision makers is, is important, but also making sure that we actually build programming and change um, laws and legislation that are going to impact people's lives. One of, one of the things that I find is the uh, fundamental thing that one can do uh, to bring people closer together and to start breaking down these barriers is literally to break bread with people. When you sit down for a meal and for a drink with people, um, that's uh, it's a powerful, there's a powerful moment that gets shared when you're doing something so human. I understand that you uh, are a pioneer in this field um, and you are often found uh, eating in many different kosher establishments. Um, first of all, what is your co- your favorite kosher eating establishment and uh, how did it come to be that you said to yourself, this is the way to work through race relations with the Jewish community? Yeah, I love Dr. Lafa. Uh, <laughs> you know, every time I pass by that place, I keep thinking like, oh, my Lafa is sick and I got to bring it to Dr. Lafa. <laughs> Like the bread is, right, but like, yeah, it's, it's it's just incredible. But no, I, I mean, honestly, I think that particularly between Muslims and Jews, um, it's been incredibly difficult for people to build trust and to see each other's, uh, honestly, a sense of humanity. Like if a Muslim opens up their mouth and talks about uh, like Israel, that two minutes later, there might be, hold on a second, is that person a friend or a foe? How's he saying? How, like, what are they saying? What are they not saying? Like, you know, there's there's a level of, hair that goes up in the back 
And similarly, like, like, you know, like Muslims who are pro-Palestinian will feel discomfort in talking about Israel or the Palestinian conflict. And, and I think that that weighs heavily upon the entire communities in terms of, you know, looking at each other across the table and, and building a sense of trust. Like that's, I honestly feel like, you know, being able to just hear each other and um, and to recognize each other's truths in an honest way is a place to start. But you you did mention Israel and that, that tends to be the sort of that touchstone that really brings out that division specifically amongst the Muslim community and the Jewish community. This country, that means, you know, a lot to the Jewish people around the world is sometimes so divisive. What What could we be doing amongst both communities that can have more conversations around that very divisive issue that can bring us together and to find some more commonalities amongst each other. I think being honest, I think sometimes people, you know, get together for like hummus and falafel dinners and talk nonsense about, you know, how Muslims and Jews need to get along. Uh, I think people need to come to tables to, to, to talk about what's really important to them. Um, and I think that doing so in a respectful manner, I'm not sure if you remember, but last year during not last year, was it last year? I'm not sure. Last year in May, correct. There was like, like everything was- during the, during the pandemic time just lost all meaning. Everything was kind of like blowing up all over the place. And there was this- Literally. Uh, literally. Yeah. But there was like, I, I think there was this, I can't remember the name of the app, but it was like a radio app where you kind of- Clubhouse. Call in and Clubhouse. Clubhouse. Yeah. And they had that conversation that like between four weeks or something and, straight it was incredible really it was the best model of conversation i was glued to that thing like i heard like the palestinians are talking about their reality israelis are talking about their reality and it was civil people weren't talking over each other they weren't listening to each other talking to each other it was honestly one of the best conversations i had ever ever heard and it went on for weeks. Remember that plan that we had that went nowhere we did clubhouse I think one No, time. no, the other plan to do the, we were going to do a, a, a pop-up restaurant over hummus and uh, call it the Chickpea Accords because you can't argue with your mouth full. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you had big dreams. I had big dreams, big dreams. But, I, I had uh, a dream where I was going to bring like a hundred Muslim families together or a uh, hundred Jewish families together and get them to all like, you know, sit at each other's homes and like over two dinners mm. and, and talk to each other. Listen. Let's start with a let's start with a chick, with a shishtauk at Doctor Lafa next time I'm in Toronto, and uh, we'll we'll invite some selected uh, whoever wants is interested. We'll uh, you know we'll invite some of the Bonjour High listeners and some other uh, people, and we can just uh, let let's get this going. I'm down with that anytime. Thank you for having me. It's an honor, uh, Mohammed Ashim, Executive Director of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. From award-winning journalist Marsha Lederman comes Kiss the Red Stairs, a compelling memoir of Holocaust survival, intergenerational trauma, divorce, and discovery that will guide readers through several lifetimes of monumental change. Marsha was five when a simple question led to a horrifying answer. She asked her mother why she didn't have any grandparents. Her mother told her the truth, the Holocaust. Decades later, her parents dead and herself a mother to a young son, 
Marcia begins to wonder how much history has shaped her own life. Reeling in the wake of a divorce, she craves her parents' help. But in their absence, she is gripped by a need to understand the trauma they suffered, and she begins her own journey into the past to tell her family stories of loss and resilience. Kiss the Red Stairs, available now wherever books are sold. The first Jews in Canada were actually Sephardim, who founded the Spanish and Portuguese congregation in 1768 in Montreal. These were traders and merchants who arrived in New France from London, mainly. The, these Jews were followed by Jews from Germany, Poland, Russia, Lithuania, and just about every other Ashkenazi land for the next two centuries, until Jews began to arrive from Iraq, Morocco, and other points east around the mid-20th century into Canada. Now, these Jews are the focus of our discussion tonight. How did they integrate? How have they fared in the intervening time? And what is their future in Canadian society? Now, before we get to our guest, um, those of you who might be unfamiliar with the terms I just used, right? So Ashkenazi is the term that we use to denote one who has ancestry from Central and Eastern Europe. And Sephardim are Jews that originate, broadly speaking, from the Iberian Peninsula, while Ashkenazim generally assume that anyone not Ashkenazi is automatically Sephardi, there is a significant third group that unfairly uh, tends to get lumped in with the Sephardim. And that is what we refer to as Mizrahi Jews or Jews from the East, right? These are Jews who are from the Middle East and North Africa, but do not descend from the Sephardim from Iberia. And uh, these Jews include Iraqi, Persian, uh, Yemeni, Lebanese Jews, amongst many, many, many other groups. And uh, with that knowledge there, I want to turn uh, to these questions about Sephardim in Canadian society. Um, and with us to talk about that is Henry Green. Dr. Green is the Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Miami, the founding director of Mosaic, the Jewish Museum of Florida, and of Sephardi Voices, an audiovisual digital archive of Arab Jews. He has just published a book of the same title with Richard Sturzberg, and he joins us this evening from Miami. Henry, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me and uh, letting me be part of the Sephardi experience, although I'm an Ashkenazi. I want to ask about you, that right away. Are you an Ashkenazi? Yeah, you're the you're the I'm, only Sephardic. I'm, I'm, I'm the most Sephardic that there is over Not there. Not even full. I'm curious uh, what made you focus so much of your work on this topic, being someone who isn't Sephardic. Right. I always feel like I've got to first create, uh, tell a story about my legitimacy. So I had my DNA done. And I found out that I'm 2% um, from the Middle East, I'm 5% Iberian, and I'm 5% Italian. So before I moved in to uh, Poland and uh, became a uh, uh, Eastern European Ashkenazi, it seems that I was uh, a Sephardi in terms of my uh, DNA. But the reality is that um, Jews in Canada, I grew up in Ottawa, and I had a very strong Jewish education. And I go to Israel in 1970, and uh, I find out that I know nothing about um, the Israeli immigrant experience. I know the Holocaust, but I know nothing about the Jews from North Africa and the Middle East. And I hear about a, a, a protest movement called Pantherim Shacharim, the Black Panthers, and I go, great, I can support civil rights in America as a Canadian. And Lo and behold, I go to the protest movement and I find out that there's Jews from Morocco who are protesting the discrimination of their parents and what they are going through. And I become um, a follower of Beton and these people who are very much committed to changing the uh, discriminatory experience and 
being accepted as a Sephardi Jew. And so I learned, in fact, that my Canadian Jewish education was missing the uh, other story of Jewish civilization. I remember when I first saw that poster of the, uh, the, the Black Panthers in Hebrew, uh, which we'll put a link to in the show notes, because it's, it's a remarkable graphic. Um, it really like changed my entire perception of what it meant to be Moroccan or of Moroccan descent. What was it? Golda Meir said, oh, they're not nice. And they made the alley somewhere in Jerusalem on one of the neighborhoods, sort of say they changed it to the we're not nice alley. And that was a lot of the influence for the Black Panther movement in Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, what? I, I echo a lot of what, what, what Henry, what you have to say. Growing up in my Jewish high school and elementary experience, we were not taught. We were taught solely about the Ashkenazim, the, the, the European experience. And then also when I lived in Israel, too, there was so much that felt foreign to me and alien to me because so much of it was from the Mizrahi and the Sephardic experience. Uh, I'm curious if you just want to touch a little bit upon what was their experience when they sort of arrived to Israel in the 50s, sort of right after the creation of the state of Israel. What was the general experience of a lot of these communities? So first, there is this kind of uh, uh, revisionist history that uh, Israel was uh, founded by just Europeans. This is not the case. Sephardi were involved also in the founding of Israel. And so what happens is that as uh, Arab nationalism post-World War II um, is developing, which is really anti-colonialism. They, Jews are, are, are in a way ethnically cleansed. They, depending on which country you're from, Morocco is a, uh, a very sweet story, uh, where Iraq is a very bitter story. 150,000 Jews in Iraq, uh, 1948. By 1951, there's only uh, 6,000 left. Very, they, 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 they're, they're expelled. They, they're, they are denationalized. They come to Israel. And what happens? Every, Israel has no resources. Israel has 650,000 people in 1948. By 1951, their population is doubled. By 1960, doubled again. And so no resources. What do they do? They put people into refugee camps. And so the Sephardi are put into refugee camps. And it's no different than the Ashkenazi. But the experience is very different thereafter because they speak Arabic. The Eastern Europeans speak Yiddish. So if you need a job in Tel Aviv, they go and get the Yiddish speaker. No one speaks Hebrew. And so what happens is the Sephardi are more and more land, uh, you know, left where they're in the Mabarot, these refugee camps, transit camps for months, and it turns into years. Then it's a question of, Zionism. The Ashkenazi, who are in control, they figure they don't really know about Zionism, so they have to feel Zionism. So where do they send them? To the new development towns in order to protect Israel. So they go to uh, Demon in the south. They go up to Kirit Shimon in the north. And so now they're in the places that don't have the schools, the educational resources. And so it turns into more institutional discrimination, not because of um, intention, but because of just the nature of Israeli society at that time. Then one, I just want to mention one other thing is that these people look Semitic. They look as an Arab. In addition, they don't speak Hebrew, they speak Arabic. And so Israel, which is dealing with security issues, it becomes in a way personal. And 
it takes a generation until these protest movements in the 70s, uh, which begins to change the tide. So, uh, you know, one might think, hearing this story, that the uh, migration of Jews from Arab lands, uh, broadly speaking, Sephardim, to Canada would be fundamentally different. Because if you look at the two major groups that start at the beginning um, of this migration to Canada, you have Iraqis and you have uh, Moroccans, um, amongst many others, and I'm sure you're going to fill it in uh, quite a bit more. Now, both of those um, are countries where French and France was, was it wasn't quite a, uh, Morocco was a protectorate, Iraq, uh, Iraqi Jews really had an affinity for France, they trained in French. You would think that when they make this migration to Montreal, uh, to Canada in general, because uh, many of the Iraqis are English speaking and they have a lot of British connections, that they would be much better integrated. Um, and from what I see, because my mother is one of those people, wasn't necessarily the case. So what was, um, what can you tell us about the Moroccan, uh, the, the Sephardic immigration to Canada around that time that was unique to Canada specifically, both for the good and for, you know, not so good? So you, you, you first have to understand where Canada was. You know, there's um, a number of scholars uh, that have written about this. Um, uh, Jean-Claude Lasserie comes uh, about the third family uh, in the late 1950s. And, you, you know, uh, there were admission uh, quotas for Jews to go to McGill University. There were no Jews sitting on uh, Protestant boards in Montreal. Um, Jews were basically on the margins in terms of the society. And then you have, you know, someone like... Uh, you know, Harold Troper, who wrote The Defining Decade of the 1960s, and everything changes. But take, for example, the Moroccans. You're, uh, Avi, partly Moroccan, right? Mm -hmm. yep. Okay, so take, uh, what year did you- I don't look it, I know, but- But, but what, what year did your parents come? Uh, my mother came in the, uh, in the late 60s. Okay, late 60s, okay. So- Mid to late. Yeah. Okay, so the Algerians, they're citizens of France, they go to France. But mm -hmm. a lot of the Tunisian Moroccans they're not citizens, they're part of a protectorate. So they're saying to themselves, where can we go? They choose a French speaking place, Montreal. They think it's great. I'm going somewhere that speaks French. But Montreal is Ashkenazi, is an Ashkenazi Jewish community. And so Mohammed was talking about discrimination. So here you have Jews who are coming from Morocco to a French place, thinking that they're gonna be integrated into a French society. And, and they what came happens? At the exact wrong time, right? Uh, because of the middle of the Quiet Revolution, and they get automatically associated with the Jews. And, you know, if, if they had come 10 years earlier, right, or 10 years later, right, after everything had been solved or settled, so to speak, right, it would have been an entirely different, you know, world. Right. But the question is how did the Ashkenazi Jewish leadership deal with this? Their comment was well, you come to the Ashkenazi schools and you learn English. And forget about we're a minority within a minority. We're just trying to, you know, get some uh, uh, leverage here and, you know, become one of us. And so, you know, OK, so, you know, you have a henna party. We don't want henna parties. You know, uh, there's Mamuna. Uh, we don't want Mamuna. You know, it's like, in fact, we can't even sit with you during Passover because you're eating rice. I mean, and so what happens is, is it turns them off and they become in a way more um, uh, uh, sensitive to the political issues that are going on at that time with the Quebecois. And they speak French. They want to preserve their heritage, their ethno identity. Um, 
They want to preserve the language. They want to be part of multiculturalism that is growing. And it creates a huge conflict between Jewish and uh, between Ashkenazi and Sephardi. And, and so mm. I ask Avi, you know, you do, what is your mother? What's her stories that she tells you at this time? Well, so she was actually, you know, in, in a good place to be dealing with this simply because she actually, when she uh, came in, she started working with Jaius right away with the neighborhood house service. So even though she was Sephardic, she was part of the integration process for other Sephardim. Um, so she is able to straddle both of those worlds um, right away. Um, but, you know, growing up myself, I wasn't yet part of this mass integration, right? I was that... I'm, I'm of that generation that is the first generation of kids that grew up of quote unquote intermarriages, right? Ashkenazi Sephardi, right? And there were not many of us, although we know who we are. Whereas if I look at my kids' schools, um, my, they, I think common, seven, right? 75 to 85% of the kids in my kids' classes are Ashkenazi Sephardi families. Yeah, that makes sense. Right, uh, but, but this is a generational change. Exactly. So it takes that extra generation for it to be fully, fully integrated. I was going to say, I was going to say one of the ways you have to understand this is in terms of geopolitics and Jewish history. So, for example, I grew up in the 50s, 60s. No one ever talked about the Holocaust, the Shoah. Not until Elie Wiesel wrote Night did we start doing it a generation later. OK, but it took another generation to Schindler's List when we started to really uh, collect the stories and become uh, and, and appreciate, in fact, what this was all about in terms of memory and building educational models. From the communities that are not coming from a direct Holocaust background, right? We're talking about people who are coming from more from North Africa, from the Middle East. Because so much of our education, and I was a child of the second referendum, where we had these divisions you spoke of earlier between the Sephardic and the Ashkenazim, there was deep divisions even in classrooms in 94, 95, do you found so much of our education was on the Holocaust? Did that help or hinder these communities as we were trying to come together? Well, what I was trying to uh, suggest here is that for the Sephardi, when they come in the, in the 60s, they're fighting a battle with the Ashkenazi. And so it's taking a, one more generation in order to just have a voice and be able to set up institutions. And they have to do their own kind of um, um, advocacy in terms of their identity. And in the process of doing that, it still takes another generation until what Avi's talking about, where his kids and intermarriage and everything else going on. It's the same kind of thing. It's generational. It doesn't happen overnight. And I think one of the things that, that one really doesn't appreciate is how much multiculturalism Canadian multiculturalism policy has helped because in doing that, it has given a voice to Ukrainians, let's say. It's given a voice to Syrians. It's given a voice to the Lebanese. It's also given a voice to the Sephardi Jew. And it's done it in a way that is really interesting because my project, Sephardi Voices, is in the macro, a story about human rights. That here are individuals who basically maybe were denationalized people who lost their property, people who came and had to remake their lives and had to do it in a way in which the Jewish community, as well as the general community, was not really sensitive to it. And so 
as they were able to do that, they also began to become part of this wider Canadian fabric and take on a Canadian identity, which is so much part of multicultural policy in Canada today. Yeah, I, 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 when you say this, I'm remarking on the fact that it used to be that um, Ashkenazim were weirded out by, uh, by Sephardic foods, crazy, spicy, weird, and Ashkenazim Sephardim was like, oh, this brown food that's just, yeah, we don't even want to deal with that. And we've gotten to the point where uh, Ashkenazim think that everything that Sephardim do is exotic and really doable and really interesting and having this renaissance of like getting into Sephardic customs and, and ideas that hasn't quite yet made the leap to the Ashkenazim where Sephardim are interested in Ashkenazi culture and, and, and stuff. Uh, I think that that will be an interesting change to see if and when that will happen. Um, but I'm, I'm, I want to go to something a little more related to that, just related to that, but a little more serious um, than, than the food and the, the, the cute mm -hmm. customs. Um, you know, I'm, I rem I'm thinking about this and, you know, David brought in the idea that, and you guys brought in the idea of the Holocaust and, and Schindler's List and, and that these stories took a while to get told. How much, because the project that you're doing is essentially um, the telling of these stories that are incredibly important to know and to not forget, right? The idea of Sephardic voices was, as you had told me, very similar to the project uh, that Spielberg was doing in terms of take, getting testimonies uh, of survivors. Um, how much... Uh, do you think, what do you think of this dynamic that for a while we couldn't tell these stories because there was so much uh, Holocaust language and ho so much Holocaust discussion happening that we couldn't quite get to the point where um, we were able to tell these Sephardic voices as well, these stories, because the, the landscape, the Jewish landscape in general was so Holocaust focused. Do you think that there's anything there to that? I think there's two different things. The first is that uh, it's very hard when you've been traumatized to have a voice. It takes time to be able to um, heal. That's the best way of saying it, to heal. And when you come, you're coming and you're speaking Arabic. That's your language, your first language. When you come, you're not aware of what these customs are about because it isn't just that you're coming from Baghdad or you're coming from Casablanca. You're also coming from the Atlas Mountains. You're coming from an area in which you do not have the French colonialism. You do not have the education. And so it takes time to be able to feel grounded. And like all Jewish families, um, at least in my, uh, my view, is that the parents sacrifice for the kids. And so they're trying to give the kids a firm grounding. And so one of the things that led me to Sephardi Voices' project was because when Spielberg did his um, Shoah project, 52,000 interviews were of Holocaust survivors. But there wasn't one of the Farhud, the worst pogrom in Baghdad in 1941. You didn't have interviews of Libyan Jews being taken to Auschwitz. So the Holocaust is not part of the Sephardi experience in terms of what we're learning. So Sephardi voices for me was twofold. One was, as I explained before, to make it part of the Jewish narrative. But it was to give to the children and grandchildren the pride of the heritage of their parents and their grandparents in terms of the story of Jewish life in Arab lands, in Islamic lands. And to hopefully, over time, change the educational system that David was talking about in part, and other you were talking about, so the children, when they have a Holocaust um, survivor come to class, let's say, why can't they have 
a person who comes from Libya or a person from Morocco or a person from Iraq? And why can't that child and the school take pride in the fact that this is part of our heritage too? And it becomes something that in fact empowers and changes our understanding that the Holocaust is just not a European story. Right. I want to go deeper into the book a little bit. Can you tell us some highlights that you went into? Because I know I went online and looked at the Sparty Voices website and there's some amazing testimonial videos and transcriptions and all sorts of stuff. Is it a reflection of that? Is it new material? What can we look forward to in reading this book? So on on June 2nd, we're donating, Sparty Voice is donating uh, the Canadian collection, about 100 interviews to the Canadian uh, Library Archives. And Erwin um, and, and, and Cutler, the former Justice Minister of Canada, Mandela's lawyer, uh, is going to be our keynote speaker. And what is it about? It's about, again, multiculturalism. Here are stories. Here are portraits of people who experienced their their displacement. Here are photographs that have never been seen before. And so what the book is about is basically taking their voices and then weaving it together as a narrative in terms of the displacement of Jews from Arab lands and in the process, how they rebuilt their life. So let me give you one or two stories. So take Victor Mashal from Montreal. He came in the early 50s. What he what did he do? He set up an Iraqi club in the 1950s, so the Iraqis who were coming could feel connected to their heritage. So let me go back to someone in Britain, a man named Abdullah Dangur, who I interviewed at 96 years old. And so he said, I asked him, "Who are you?" And he said to me, "Well, well, I'm British. I've lived here for 60 years." And then he looks at me and he says but how can I deny that I'm an Iraqi? I've lived there for 3,000 years. Or you take um, uh, someone like um, uh, Lisette Shashua from Montreal, another Iraqi. And she escaped in uh, in 1971. And she talks about how she had a dress like an Arab and they go to the Kurdistan area. And it's the Kurds who become their saviors and help them cross into Iran. And so it then reaches out to a wider audience. Look what's going on with the Kurds over the last few years in Iraq. And so it becomes a bridge. And what we're hoping with this book is that it also becomes uh, a way for the people who tell the stories to become ambassadors in terms of inter-ethnic bridging, because they have similar experience to other ethnic groups. And so the book is a way to both provide a strengthening of heritage, but also a way to bring voices so people can share their stories. I have to say it's really fascinating having ministered to the uh, to the Iraqi community um, that their story is so fascinating. This line that they keep repeating, which is very true and very moving, is that um, this is the first time in three thousand years that there are no Iraqi 
there's no real Iraqi Jewish population. The Jews are not in that area, literally in 3,000 years. And it's very, very sad for them. And uh, it's one of those stories that I feel like the larger Jewish community is not nearly as aware of as, for example, in Montreal or, or the rest of Canada, um, the Moroccan community and their stories because their numbers are, are so much bigger and, and, and different. Um, I'm very curious about what do you see as trends in terms of um, when we think Sephardim, we very much think about um, Jews in, in Montreal. Um, what, are the, what are the Sephardic communities like in the rest of Canada and what is their experience? Because um, they are likely much, more, much smaller in number and much uh, smaller representation proportionally to the Jewish community. And I feel like Montreal is very much the exception in that there is so much almost, we're, we're near parity with Ashkenazim and Sephardim. Well, again, it's part of, you know, the story of uh, the Quebecois and the transformation in, uh, in uh, Quebec and Montreal. I mean, at one point, uh, the Ashkenazi in Montreal were the dominant community. And then, you know, as, as Levesque came to power and things changed, um, you know, there were uh, more for sale signs than crocuses in the spring. And it resulted in Jews leaving and going to uh, Montreal, uh, to Toronto. So Montreal has about, uh, you know, under 100,000 Jews and about one third are Sephardi, mostly made up of Moroccans, uh, some Tunisians, uh, Algerians and, uh, and, and, and Iraqis, little bits of Egyptians. Uh, you have a few Persians. Uh, Toronto has about uh, 200,000 Jews now, about 10% uh, of them, 20,000 uh, are Sephardi. Um, they also have um, a good number of... Uh, Spanish uh, Jews, those are from uh, northern uh, Morocco, Tangier, Tetuan. Um, and then you have smaller communities like in Ottawa. Uh, Ottawa has um, a Sephardi club. It has a few thousand Jews. Yeah. Um, my, uh, she's, about, she's about to marry into the family. Oh, are you? Uh, <laughs> Not me, but my, my brother's um, almost wife, they're getting married this weekend. Uh, she's half Lebanese and her father's actually involved in that community from what I And Elena, I, I understand you live in Calgary or somewhere or? Uh, That's David. David, I David. take that David. honor. Yes. Okay. So do you have any uh, Sephardi in Calgary? That is a great question. I wish I could answer. I'm part of a synagogue, B'nai Tikva, here. I don't know what the Sephardic or Mizrahi community is like at all. Um, I know we've had some Spanish Jews involved in our community, but I can't, I, I, I'm hoping you could speak to that more than I can, actually. Well, I don't, I, I mean, I do know in Calgary, you have a, uh, 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 a Spanish a scholar who um, is Jewish, who uh, was an Azareli fellow at uh, Concordia and is now teaching at the University of Calgary. And uh, she's Sephardi and teaching uh, Sephardi heritage. Um, I know in Vancouver you have a small community, uh, but for the most part, it's really uh, three, four places that have any kind of density where you can have a synagogue, uh, where you can have some kind of uh, community. But, but I think that the, the real sense of it is uh, that there is a change going on. And let me explain what that means. Israel was 15%, 20% Ashkenazi in, uh, sorry, Sephardi in 1948. Today, about 55, 60% of Israel is Sephardi. And so the future of our Kesher, our connection between Israel and diaspora Jewry is going to have to become more and more Sephardi connected. And I think as, as we move forward in terms of our education and in terms of our connections, there's going to be more like what uh, maybe what Avi was talking about, intermarriage between the Sephardi and the Ashkenazi. And with that, we'll become a stronger connect to Israel 
in terms of the Sephardi. And I think that is going to put the Sephardi more in our radar. And it's going to play out in different ways in different communities. One of my observations, having grown up in Montreal and witnessing the differences between both communities, Ashkenazi and Sephardic, is that I've noticed that more Sephardic Jews tend to be more observant in their like religiosity. Um, whereas in Ashkenaz community in Montreal, it's a lot more secular, even though there are religious pockets. And the way that I always understood that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that because there was a more recent migration, especially with the Moroccan community, they're probably doing more of what they did back then in the same way that when Ashkenazi ancestors came, you know, across the, on the boat, they were more religious and then it kind of uh, became more assimilated. So what do you see as the future of Sephardic um, North American life? Do you think that that is going to happen as well and they'll become more secularized or is there something specific to the Sephardic culture that you think is going to hold on to it for longer? That's very uh, insightful, Elena. Very, very insightful because indeed that's the way most sociologists and scholars look at it. One generation deferred, therefore the secularization process is one generation later. But I do think there is a big difference. In the Sephardi tradition, there isn't reform, conservative, and orthodox. It's only the middle way. So in Israel, for example, of course, you'd go to a synagogue Friday, uh, Saturday morning, but then you'd go to the soccer game in the afternoon. It was fine, totally accepted. So what you have is, a, uh, I think, a much more tolerance within Sephardi tradition of um, where the bookends can be placed. In the Ashkenazi, it's mm. much more rigid. And, and, um, and I think that the, um, the Ashkenazi well, community... I would actually I would frame it the, the other way around, actually. I think that um, because um, Europe has, and Western Europe has a tradition of reform, right? Then Ashkenazim have this language of being able to say, well, I might go to Shul Shabbat morning. I might go to services Saturday morning. Um, and then I go to work or I go to the game. Um, that means that I'm reformed. Whereas in the Sephardic world, you don't have this language of reform. And so you may be doing exactly the same thing, but in your mind, you are just as traditional or orthodox as the rabbi, right? That because there is no frame of reference for being able to say, well, that makes me an assimilated or that makes me a different category of Jew. Um, and what's fascinating about that is the rabbinic responsa, right? In the Ashkenazic world over the past 200 years is a push against ref- reformation. And in the Sephardic world, because you have this, you know, this flexibility, rabbis are basically saying, well, we want to make maximize the ability for people to practice or to be. Um, and, and that that is really where um, the shift is. So I think, I think what we're, we're saying exactly the same thing, but I think the framing is um, that reform gives people that ability to, uh, to be um, something else. I, I agree with you. Um, I think your framework is, 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 is sound on. I think it also, though, has to do, as I said before, that Sephardi are a minority within a minority. And so the mm-hmm. ethno-religious connect in terms of family, in terms of uh, synagogues, is extremely important to them. So take Montreal, for example, Spanish-Portuguese synagogue. It's extremely strong. I, I was the rabbi there. You know, it's been what? 250 years, 50, you know, three years. And, yep. and um, uh, uh, I think it's uh, the cantor is Ben Lulu, who had come from mm-hmm. Ottawa now. And so you have this incredible um, 
uh, connection from one city to another city. Uh, well, he had he had grown up there. No, he, he was he was the protege of the previous cantor, who was the protege of Salman Emzalag. So he comes from that tradition. Right, but but new, he went to Ottawa, and Portuguese. now there's the connect. And he came back. That's yeah. that's what I'm saying. There's a, there's a connect here, and and I think that that what happens uh, in terms of this the 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 evolution, as it were, there's much more connectedness. And in mm-hmm. and 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 um, and this is why I think Israel plays a very big role because you don't have American and Canadian Jews uh, running to Israel in the way that you have uh, the uh, Moroccans, the Algerians, the Libyans. You know, over fifty percent settled in Israel, so that the Jews who came to Morocco from Morocco to Montreal, let's say, they have so many cousins in Israel that they're going back and forth all the time. There's this connect over and over and over again. And so I, in fact, view it as very positive. I think the Sephardi community is going to get stronger because of Israel. I think because of their family connections, they're going to be stronger, at least in the next generation. There's going to be less intermarriage than in terms of the Ashkenazi. So we've seen in the past couple of years more of a normalization between certain Arab countries and the state of Israel. And you have these communities, both Israeli and diasporic, Mizrahi, uh, Sephardic uh, Jews who are sort of opening up and rediscovering their roots by either, let's say, going to Morocco, revisiting these places. Do you see this uh, almost as a positive where I think maybe the older generation sort of said we were forced out, we left these places, we feel we want to cut all our ties. And the younger generation sort of says we want to rediscover our roots and where you came from and our grandparents came from. Do you see this as a, as a positive or as a negative as they reconnect with their former countries? It's a great question, David. And I think that one can't be monolithic because there's a very strong bitterness in terms of Iraq where they were denationalized and lost their property. There's three Jews left in Iraq now. But in Morocco, it's very different. The king was very supportive of Moroccans and they didn't leave with that same bitterness. And so what's happening is that there's pilgrimages go, that are going back now. So they're, they're visiting the, uh, the, the, um, the cemeteries where rabbis are buried. Um, Jirba in Tunisia, um, is a community which is still thriving uh, with uh, 2,000 Jews. So you have a very different experience if you're coming from North Africa or if you're coming from Iran or Iraq. Two very, very different experiences. And the Jews who tended to come to Canada were more from the Maghreb, more from uh, North Africa. Um, And so you have this uh, uh, pilgrimage going on in a um, in a, in a uh, way that is growing as Israel is building more um, sustainable relationships with the Gulf states and places like Morocco. All right. I, I want to wrap things up um, because uh, I think that we, we're really trying to, to get all these things uh, together that we can go on for hours and hours. Um, mm-hmm. uh, before, before, before we do that, I, uh, you have an event coming up, first of all, next Thursday, right, um, in Ottawa. Right. Um, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes at the National Library. Is that open to the public? I know it's a VIP event, but I do okay. have an event on June 8th uh, at the Spanish-Portuguese Synagogue. Uh, it's at 3 p.m. in which um, uh, I will be talking about the book and, and also interviewing Edmund Albaz, the former president 
uh, of the synagogue. And uh, the book is available online and we'll check that out. Um, I do want to give you a couple of quick lightning rounds because you've spent so much of your time in, in involved in the Sephardic community. Uh, let's put you on the spot here. So what is your favorite Sephardic food? Uh, I would say uh, uh, couscous. Oh, excellent. Okay. Uh, what is your favorite Sephardic uh, custom? Um, it's actually a Persian custom, which is on Pesach and you get scallions mm-hmm. and you just mm-hmm. whack the uh, out of whoever's sitting next to you. Excellent. Um, do you have, uh, I mean, I'm sure that there are many, many, and we can talk about all these f- turns of phrases in Yiddish and Yiddish sayings and Proverbs. What is your favorite uh, Judeo-Arabic or Ladino or Sephardic in general uh, word or phrase that says something that you can not otherwise say English. Um, I, I can't say it on on on. on. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops! Euphemistically, no, no, nothing. All right. It's no, okay. it's it's you know <laughs> it, the, the the wonderful thing about um, you know when you swear in different languages, you do it in different kinds of ways. So in in Christianity, you swear against the church, but in the Arabic mm-hmm. world, it's family, and um, yes, so you really can't say it. But they're they're okay. they're, but they're very right. colorful. Yes. Do you have a favorite uh, Sephardic community, or is that like asking for your favorite child, and you're not going to say anything? I, I, you know, for me, I would say the my the favorite one for me is Montreal because I grew up in Ottawa, and so my first exposure really to Sephardi uh, in Canada was through Montreal, and. Okay. Um, I had meant Moroccan, Iraqi, Persian, you know, Georgian, <laughs> but Montreal works out. Like, What's your favorite type <laughs> of person? <laughs> No, because communities have specific cultures and customs, and you can be into Italians. Anyway, well, it's like, yeah, it's like asking it. you which, if you were married several times, which wife did you love the most? There you, you go. Know, uh, we're not going to go there. <laughs> on that note, excellent. <laughs> so, so it's, it's so it's obvious. It's got to be you. You're Moroccan. You're the uh... of course, yes. No, I don't even like Moroccan so much. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I'm allowed to because uh, you know I come from that community. <laughs> Dr. Henry Green, it's been wonderful to chat with you. Um, I hope we can have you on anytime we need to uh, find out and be informed more of the uh, Sephardic community in Canada. Uh, You're welcome here anytime. Uh, You can find links to buy the book uh, Sephardi Voices in the show notes um, and to the event on June 8th, uh, as well as to the work uh, that Henry Green is doing. And as always, you can email us at bonjour at thecjn.ca to let us know what you thought. Dr. Green, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you so much. Good night, everyone. For our second topic today, we wanted to focus on something that seems to be getting a lot of attention in general. We have touched on this in the past, uh, but with Alana having just finished a play and David deep in the weeds of a stage play of his own that he is uh, putting on, uh, we thought it would be a good time to revisit the idea of Jewish representation in the arts um, because your minds are so focused into it. And tonight specifically, we wanted to think about this in how this dynamic plays out in the Canadian arts uh, scene in general. Alana, you just finished Mazel Tov. Tell us about the experience. Yeah, so I was just in a dark comedy called Muzzle Tov, and it in, included a lot of different themes around Jewish representation. There was interfaith uh, couples. My character was a presumably Ashkenazi uh, Jewish woman who was marrying uh, a black man. So uh, it kind of touched a bit on that. It touched a lot on anti-Semitism. And what I really appreciated, just going a little bit behind the scenes, is that uh, all the Jews were played by Jews. And if you've listened to previous episodes of the podcast, that is something that I talk about a lot. Um, I have learned many different angles 
from all the different guests that we have talked about this issue with. And I, I'll say that I've opened my, my mind a bit more that if someone plays it well, if maybe they grew up around Jews, like when I did the interview with Mayim Bialik about her movie that just came out recently, and she told me Candace Bergen grew up amongst Jews and she was improvising Yiddish. I was like, okay, once in a while, I'll let it slide. But for the most part, um, just as David brought up at the beginning of this episode, I feel like Jews are often really left out of the discussion when it comes to uh, issues around race and ethnicity and representation. And I think that we should be bringing our voices to the stage. So uh, my character and the character who uh, played my father, uh, we were both Jewish and my director was Jewish. And um, and yet the playwright was not Jewish. And the Jewish. playwright was not, which is really interesting. And I was Quebecois, I believe, thinking, right? He was French Canadian. And I remember him telling us in the very first table read that when they did the show in French, because that's how it uh, first came out. It was a French play that then got translated to English for the production that we just did. Um, he had a lot of Sephardic friends come see the show and they loved it and were laughing because for them it was in their language and now doing, so I, I almost wonder if I've never re read the French version, but I was thinking like, how would this have translated in French? Were they just Sephardic Jews or were they still kind of Ashkenazi? So I, I still have that question for him, but it was, was, was it still called Muzzle Tov in French or did they transliterate it to, you know, something? It was, it was called Muzzle Tov, but they changed the spelling of it. So it was mm. Mazal Tov, M-A-Z-A-L. And then uh, for whatever reason, it needed to be M-A-Z-E-L for our, our version. And I, I saw it. Um, did you find that the, um, that the characters were written Right. How did you find the, the, the your character and the character of, uh, you know, mm -hmm. of the person who plays your father, uh, mm -hmm. your father in the play, Jews being written by non-Jews? Did you find that there was something there to uh, to to work with, to, play, to to deal with? Did you sure. do you wish you had an opportunity to talk to the, you know, playwright and and or the and or the director about these things? Or did you find that it was there was enough there to to to? I mean, we actually did talk to the playwright quite a bit. The mm -hmm. director was in direct contact with him. So mm -hmm. if we had questions or things that didn't make sense, then he would fix it. But I actually found there was nothing that felt off to me in terms of the references. He did a lot of research and what made him want to write this show was he had done a couple plays in the Jewish community. I don't know what they were. Um, and he consulted rabbis and many different people from the Jewish community to make sure that everything that he wrote was ethical and it made sense and that the values were displayed. And I thought especially the, the father character um, did have like a, a lot of his personality and things that he said reminded me of a lot of people that I've met in my life. And they're all different kinds of Jews. I've definitely met people who are exactly my character. I think that I have some things that I'm similar and there's some things I'm very different from her in terms of my Judaism, but so I, I know you didn't see this, David, and so it's not entirely fair for you to critique, to critique but maybe you, as, a, as an actor slash- I loved every minute as, that I saw. What, what I'm going to ask you is, as an actor slash director, can you critique my critique of what I'm about to say? Um, so <laughs> no, of course. Um, I found, right, and this is, this is not a slight on any of the performances at all, right? Because um, I really, I loved your performance. It, it was great. It was wonderful. She's blushing right here. Oh, thank you. Anyways, um, but I found that the, the characters were written in a very one-dimensional way. Right, that there was okay. this like, oh, this is the, what, what I think a Jewish woman is gonna be, right, is gonna be the shrill 
traditional Jewish woman who has these like goes over the top at any moment that the something goes wrong and her wedding is ruined and you know and it was that was her representation and your father the, the representation of your of, of the person who played your father in the play it was also this this sage wise man from Poland who has these beautiful things to say and who always brings wisdom and a little bit of you know um, wisdom in a chemical form sometimes and you know <laughs> the play's over so I can spoiler right there um, but like but there was a very like very specific roles written out for Jews and I was like that's the thing that I was having a hard time with that led me to be thinking about this segment I was like well when Jews are written by non-Jews mm -hmm. right and and people are written by people right because that's very different from playing people sure right um sure that there's something that happens there that like maybe you're not quite living the experience and able to really um write something that has real depth and dimension sure well i'll tell you a secret about <laughs> acting is that you have to kind of forget any preconceived notions you have about like your take on those types exactly of things. so it has nothing to do with your performance no performance no no i mean yeah. like i no matter what my initial feelings were around that topic, like you have to literally forget about them because you want to, you want to service the story. Yes. But I will say that we did have a lot of conversations um, around my character specifically around, is she, you know, too one note or too whiny? And is she coming across a, a, a bit in that way? And I know that the, the writer did actually add in some things, even while we were rehearsing to give her more of that dimension. And my goal was to make her as, like 3D as possible working with the material that I had because I did have those thoughts initially are people going to see her as just like a spoiled girl but you also have to keep in mind that the, the what she's facing in the story is insane and that sure. it's it's an emotional arc but anyway that's a, that's enough about me we don't need to put my show under the microscope let's go to David <laughs> I mean someone even in the uh, who's listening right now sort of said would either of you ever play a nun or a priest in a blockbuster even though you're not of the Christian faith uh hands down they're paying I'm playing basically I think that th we brought up this question before as long as you do the research as long as you coming from a place of care and consideration as long as you don't make it as Avi described one-dimensional and sticky in a sense then absolutely, I believe you have a right to play it as well. I'm, I'm, I'm gay as well. I've seen straight people get up on stage and play these characters who are gay. I've had artists who are very upset and they're sort of describing and sort of says, only people who are queer should be playing queer roles. I happen to disagree with that. I think you don't have to be Jewish to play a Jewish role. You don't have to be gay to play a gay role. As long as you put in the effort, the research and the commitment to those roles and what they're after, that is what we want to see on stage. One, one thing that I'll say, though, is that I think that there and correct me if you disagree, but I think that there is a difference when we're just talking about religion versus talking about ethnicity. And there's a wider conversation to be had about Judaism, not just being a religion. We we are an ethno religion. So while um, one can convert into Judaism, I think there's something to be said about the, the baggage, for lack of a better word, that we carry on our shoulders. And that is the part that needs to be represented accurately. And so I actually have played nuns before not in a blockbuster film but i have played them on stage um and um i've played muslims even but i was told like years later that the director who cast me in that which was back in school probably shouldn't have done that like i wore a hijab and i actually went into the muslim um they had like a like a girls kind of hangout and i interviewed them and they were all excited that I was going to be playing a Muslim and they showed me how to tie the scarf and they showed me how to do everything. Um, and then years later, I, I wore the scarf um, doing the monologue in front of a panel of people. And they were like, you should probably not do this. And that was, you know, before we were having these conversations more publicly. And I was like, huh, yeah, I guess that's true. So 
it's it's a wider it's a wider conversation that has changed in in several years so i was i was touring the show for five years on and off throughout canada and the u.s where my co-star um is colombian but she played a muslim teenage girl and we would tour the show and there was sort of never any discussion and muslim girls would come up to her and says oh my god we love how you portrayed us you portrayed us so accurately we loved it but in the last few months of our five-year tour there was pushback and that was the first time and that's where we started to clock this type of change that was happening the conversations that were taking place to be like can you play these roles and uh, it, it sort of shook us away to sort of say, what can you play and what can't you play? Are there are there roles that you can think of um, within the recent past or even further um, that are great uh, examples of Jewish representation in Canadian arts and Canadian plays, especially ones written by non-Jews or or the reverse? Like, is there a, is there a role that you have seen in a film, in a Canadian film, where you were like, oh my god, that 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 should not have been written like that, or, or that was a bad representation? The actor. Like a, a recent one, you're saying? Something, I don't know. What's, what sticks Honestly, out in your mind? most of the time these days, Jewish um, content is written by Jews, in my experience. What about mm-hmm. you, David? I don't see I don't see that happening a lot on screen. Probably uh, I would concur most Jewish roles have some kind of Jewish say in it, whether it's directly or yeah. secondhand or shown it around, because there are, hey, Jews exist in the media business, let's not pretend. Like there are Jewish playwrights, there are Jewish screenwriters, there are Jewish actors. Um, and I think if, as long as you do the work and you, you sort of submit it around, I, I think it's easy to sort of get that honest feedback. Do you think then that, you know, if you're Jewish and you're writing for a couple of roles that are specifically not Jewish, you should, um, ask, you know, for not just for input, but like, is, at what point is it like, input like a different somebody, religion, a different ethnicity, something or else. Yeah. Like, like I'm saying if that's the case and Jews yeah. should write Jewish roles, maybe, you know, a Jewish writer should only write Jewish roles and you should have like a place written like by a team of people because uh, the Jews, the Jews shouldn't write the, the nun role, uh, you know, if they're writing it. And it's, I'm curious because you write, you write this, David, all you write stuff all the time, right? Well, here's the thing. I've been working for the past two years on a script that really heavily focuses on a Mizrahi female role, right? Am I allowed to write that from my Ashkenazi perspective. So I knew with that, with that, I had to do the research. I had to interview Mizrahi people. I had to get information to be like, tell me what it is. Did you dress in drag and like go to a Mizrahi show for four years on the other side of the Mechitza so you can Is that really... like method writing? Like, like... <laughs> method That's what I'm curious about. Yes, method writing. <laughs> you, you can only do, you, you do the work you have to do. And I think at the end of the day, someone might still be upset and sort of says, you didn't represent it correctly enough. But what I've done is I think I've done the work where I have researched, I've interviewed, I've exposed this script, I've had rewrites based on feedback from what I've done. Do I have a right as an Ashkenazi Jew to portray a Mizrahi female character? I I think I do. Um, And I'd love to hear more feedback in the future from it. I'm going to bring up another topic that I'm curious to see if this has affected you, David. Maybe we've talked about this in the past, just off air, Um, is that a lot of Jews that I know who are in the acting industry um, have often been typecast as ethnically ambiguous in the past. <laughs> like I had a teacher who honestly looks a lot like my dad. Um, my dad's side of the family, we are Ashkenazi, but he has darker skin. I, I get a bit of it from him. Um, his skin's a, a, even darker than mine. And um, my teacher for years and years and years um, said that he was known to his LA agent as the guy who could do every ethnicity. They were like, we'll send you out for Mexican, Spanish, Italian, whatever. And in my own life, people always would uh, ask me if I was their ethnicity, not just like random people who were like, oh, are you Persian? I would have Persian people asking me, are you Persian and Italian people? And then all of a sudden it's now shifted to saying, okay, um, 
unless you're actually those things, then you shouldn't be playing these roles, which honestly is super, I, I get it and it makes total sense. But what happens now is that as someone who, like a lot of Jews do not identify as being white because of the social connotation of what that, you know, being like uh, from a waspy background or of like a, a privileged class, which is usually what the connotation is. Um, and there are many light-skinned Jews and there are many light-skinned Sephardic Jews and many, you know, it's become a strange place as a Jewish actor because you kind of get labeled as white. You, you absolutely. What are your thoughts? Uh, it's so complex. I even actually just shot out an email asking about clarification from this because there's a big movement underfoot that we want representation. We want BIPOC voices for these roles. You know, we have something in Alberta called the 3550 initiative where we want the appropriate representation. And I would sort of say, a lot of companies would say, we need the exact appropriate representation. But for Jews, that doesn't count. We're going to hire someone exactly from this particular background. So, you know, we're looking for someone who is specifically Métis, who grew up in this region. Yeah. And then we have a Jewish role. Oh, well, we all kind of get what Jews are like, so we don't really need to cast a Jew for it. But you're going to spend so much effort trying to find the other person's background. It's almost like Jews don't count in this day and age. And I really think there's a complexity for our Jews white, you know, even our Ashkenazi Jews white. There is this question where I think a lot of Jews that I've spoken to over the past three, four, five years are like, we're ambiguous, we're white passing, we're white until they say we're not white, and then it's sort of taken away from us. This is... Right. I think like Jews don't fit in easily to this kind of box. And I think a lot of people to are box, into this yeah. category. And I was like, I don't think we fit easily into the, I think we need to yeah. oh, sort of say it has to be more nuanced. Yeah. And it's interesting because I've gotten so defensive about this that I just try not to like assume that I would fit into any type of BIPOC space. And I'm like, nope, that's not my place. Nobody has invited me and I'm just not going to stay there. And then I went out um, for coffee a few like months ago with this Egyptian director that I've worked with. And he was like, oh, you should join this BIPOC group on Facebook. And I'm like, but I'm not BIPOC. And he was like, but you kind of, you kind of yeah. are. And it was really interesting. You, you kind of are, but you're not. It was really interesting are, to hear not. someone who's Egyptian tell me that. I was like, oh, that's kind of affirming, but I still don't know if I'm going to join this group. <laughs> yeah. Similar experiences on my end, you know, people from different backgrounds, Lebanese sort of said, yes, but you fit, you belong with us. And I was like, ooh, I've been told I don't belong because of how I'm perceived and what, what I look like right now. So, so here's what I hope. And you know, you guys know I'm, I'm, I'm Mr. Contrarian, sorry, Rabbi Contrarian. Of course you are. Um, I just, yes. you know that I have a hard time with this and that I want to be able to support actors to be able to say you are, um, you know, you're able to play what you should be able to play um, short of, you know, prosthetics, right. To give you, you know, eyes that make you look more Asian, right. That I, I think there's a problem think we're with very that. Beyond right? that. Like I, 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 like I, I, yes. I think that that's, you know, we can draw the line in, in certain places and I'm not sure where exactly that's going to be. But I think that with Jews being the people that are the ones that are being perceived as ones who can code switch, um, I'd like to hope that this is the example that breaks the entire mold that you need a Métis person from a certain region to be able to play that thing. And you need, a, you know, somebody from the Caribbean, but only from a certain country in the Caribbean, because that's what the role is. And the idea that you said that like actors should be able to play roles if they feel like they are qualified for it and that they think that well, they can pat, not bring if it it's along. like a different ethnicity. No. So, so again, so that's, that's, there, there are difficulties absolutely yeah. there. Um, but, you know, if you were given a role um, for somebody that was, you know, um, that was biracial and said, and, and the, the, the role, the, the, the script explicitly said that this is a person who um, is biracial, but looks fairly, you know, Caucasian. 
right? Very, very Caucasian and, mm-hmm. and really passes. And, you know, the there's nothing about the role and the presentation of the role that says that you have to actually be biracial, right? So at some point you're going to start asking yourself, well, maybe that means that certain people, right? I, I'm not sure where that to line honest, goes. I probably would not feel comfortable doing that on audition because I've been privy to hearing so many conversations in the arts about how people of those ethnicities feel about those roles being given to people who aren't that it and they are the reason why they're this conversation is so dominant right now in the arts and culture sphere is because for so long people of color were not given opportunities to play anything other than stereotypes and now that they're being able to play leads and they're actually getting seen who am I to take that role away from someone who is actually biracial I, to me, it sounds like the it's a it's the work of the writers and directors almost, and less the role of the actors, right? If you well, it's actually more the cast casting, the cast, yeah. casting, and then director who gives like the final seal on the producer. Right. So, so, so the the responsibility is on the writers to make three dimensional characters that are not stereotypes simply because they are the African-American or they are the Asian character. A hundred percent. That plays a huge role. But as well. if we get to that point, I mean, like I said, it, we don't want just Jews. Um, to, you know, to be playing Jews. We're okay with non-Jews, as you said, right? Yeah. I know we, we differ on, on, on nasal, right? Um, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll table that discussion. Um, and, and, and you're, you, you don't feel bad when somebody not Jewish does that. And you're okay playing somebody that isn't Jewish. I don't feel bad when someone not Jewish plays someone Jewish. Yeah, you don't yeah, say. I, yeah, I do all the time. But well, you were the one that said if they play it and and you think yeah, that they if do, they do it well, that you know how, yeah. they, how how rare it is that they do it well. Yeah. But Alana, are you upset know. because you want the role no. as an artist, as an actor, I mean, or are you why she likes you sure? Maisel's dad? Yes, let's be like honest. Maisel. Let's be honest. Because Tony Shalhoub actually does a good job. He's very convinced. So Tony Shalhoub gets the exception, but I think I think we have to be honest. Sometimes as artists, it's like we want to play these roles, right? We're we're all want to work and we're all desperate, and we have to check ourselves to sort of say, are we saying this because we feel that way, honestly, or because we want the work? Oh, I'll think on that, but I don't think that's my perspective. Okay, I I think that we should be able to move beyond that and to say if actors are really like to to go back to 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 the beginning of where we were talking, if you really feel like you're not necessarily, and again, I'm not necessarily, I don't want to get into critiquing the author, the playwright, whatever it is, um, that we want to, to move on. Um, but if your job is to be the, the, the clay, right, the work mm-hmm. of, the, of the director and of the, of the playwright, then um, no matter how poorly written or whatever it is, your job should be able to do that, whether you're Jewish or not, whether the other character is Jewish or not. And we should be able to get beyond that, again, uh, with the bracketing of ethnicities, which is its own separate discussion. That that's my uh, you know deal with that. We all keep this discussion going for many episodes, I'm sure. Absolutely, David. Do you have anything to wrap up as you are doing all this casting for your own stage reading and, and discussion? I'm doing a we're doing a reading at the synagogue next week for a play called Facts by Arthur Milner, and it was I, I was sort of thrust upon me to put in charge to cast this thing. Um, as an actor, I cast myself in one of the roles as one of the Israeli settlers. Um, but then we have a Palestinian police officer and an Israeli police officer, and we talked amongst ourselves as a group with the playwright. Do we need these people to be exactly as they're set, as they are the characters in the show? They felt very flexible about these things, so we reached out, and I think it was important to all of us that someone from uh, a, a similar background is playing the Palestinian officer. I, I, I asked, I asked a group, you know, do we know any Palestinian artists in the city of Calgary? Um, I, I couldn't find any that fit this demographic of this age range. So we did 
widen the net a bit to find someone who is Lebanese slash Armenian who's going to play that role. And I think that was important to all of us, that we weren't just going to have some off the street, you know, typical white person to be thrust into this show. Um, I think we wanted to draw those lines. Makes sense. I hear that. Well, good luck with it and uh, can't wait to hear about it when it's done. Thanks. Now it's the time that our show where we like to talk about our nachas of the week, that thing that makes us feel, made us feel good uh, and uh, Canadian and Jewishy um, over the past week. Uh, David, what's been your nachas? So we talked, we were talking about this before with with um, our guests. So I'm giving it to a city, the city of Meknes, Morocco. Um, this past Ooh. week, dozens of Jews traveled this week for the first pilgrimage of its kind since the 1960s, after the kingdom restored the city's Jewish cemetery. Um, the cemetery was founded in 1682, and you know, one young rabbi who was there visiting Morocco for the first time sort of said, it's a huge source of pride to come back, to come to the city of Meknes in the footsteps of our ancestors who rest here. So shout out, shout out to the city and shout out to the country of Morocco. Alana, what's your office this week? Mine's going to be not to a city, but to some individuals, uh, to my brother Daniel and his fiance Hannah. Um, who are avid listeners of the show. They're getting married this weekend. I'm very excited. I believe Hannah's our first three-time shout-out then. Yeah, I know. I was thinking that. (laughs) There you go. Three's company, but I guess it's good in this case. Uh, Mazel tov, and um, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, looking for the mazals. Excellent. Uh, I am going to give a recommendation. Um, and because uh, we started every segment, I believe, except for the actor segment, uh, dealt with food. Um, And we keep talking about this idea that like oh Ashkenazim are like they, they now finally got have cracked the code on Sephardic food and they think it's cool and exotic and spicy or whatever and all that um my recommendation is that Sephardim should really get into Ashkenazi food good luck I, I it, th- but that's the problem is that like as long as there is this denigration of saying oh this brown right. gross food I don't have anything to do with it there will have, always be a um a split you know, amongst the right. people. And I think that if you open your mind a little bit and, and see what the other people are eating and with a truly open mind to say, hey, what's this chopped liver all about? What yeah. are these gribbonists going to be going for? You know, and there's something wonderful about a fresh, you know, batch of grit. You know, gefilte. You know what gribbonists are, David? It sounds really, I, I actually don't. Sounds really it's, gross. You know what chicharrones are? Yeah. Yeah. So it's Jewish chicharrones, oh, right? So you take okay. chicken skin. And you, you deep fry, fry it. it. So you take fat and you fry it in more fat. And it ends up super crispy. And I'll amazing. stick to the pork rinds. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, go ahead. so my cousins are half-half, Ashkenaz and Sephardic. And my aunt has kind of found a blend between all the different cuisines. And her Shabbat meals are very much both. Um, she's taken to making um, cholent instead of dafina, but what she does is she adds chickpeas into it to kind mm-hmm. of give it the Moroccan flavor. And then I don't know if this is just my family or it must have not just been my family, but we have a different type of gefilte fish recipe that's actually peppery. So there are these big kind of peppery bulbous pieces of gefilte fish. You have as spoken about to, the peppery gefilte fish but in the past. The people here, they don't know. I'm telling them. On the podcast, you have. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about these people on the show. I cannot show. wait. I want to finally taste. It's really good. Paprika filter. Um, yeah. And and so there there are ways of bridging it. And she also has her salad quiche and she has the Moroccan things. And I think that's the way to do it. Is you actually just do both. Yeah. I I perfect harmony. Couldn't agree more. But I do believe that uh, Sephardim should be opening up their minds and their palates to Ashkenazi food. Not all the time, but at least you know welcome that into the you know because that that will really bring a much closer blend of the cultures. 
Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week of May 27th, Shabbat Parashat Bechukotai. Our producer is Michael Freeman, technical production by Andre Goulet. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. We thank the great folks at the Canadian Race Relations Foundation, including, but not limited to, Mohamed Hashim, Neil Santamaria, Ohana Oliveira, and Suveka Priyatharsan for all of their tireless work on this project tonight. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at the cjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, please do tell a friend about Bonjour Chai, as well as the work of the CRRF. I'm sure they'll like it too. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at the cjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. This episode has been brought to you by Looking Back, Moving Forward, 160 Years of Jewish Life in B.C. Published by the Jewish Museum and Archives of British Columbia for their 50th anniversary, this elegant volume is a -a once-in-a-generation collection of Jewish life and history throughout the province. Order your copy today at jewishmuseum.ca.